Well, we're going to be diving into the end of chapter 14. But before I read verses 17 through 24, I need to fill you in on what happens in verses 1 through 16 so we'll know the background of the story. Now, in our last episode, Lot and Abram had separated. Abram was a very wealthy man, and Lot was blessed because of Abram's wealth, and they both had large herds of livestock and flocks of sheep, so large they couldn't share the same area. So Abram trusted God and said, Lot, you choose. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go north, I'll go south. Well, Lot chose the fertile lot, the fertile soil of Sodom. It's not a good decision, as we get a little foreshadowing last week, that Sodom was a very wicked city. So Lot goes in that direction, Abraham goes the other way, and God reminds Abram, I've made you a promise. Abram, Lot chose what looked good immediately, but Abram, everywhere you walk in this land is going to be yours. And Abram, your descendants are going to number more than the sand on the seashore. Things are going well for a while, but we find out the land that Abram was living in, well, It was a rough place. There were cities all throughout Canaan, and these cities were small. Some scholars believe ranging in size from maybe four or 500 people to maybe several thousands. And each city had a king, but this king was more like a warlord. And at times, some cities would form an alliance and would attack other cities. And so there was this constant battle going back and forth. Well, a group of warlords led by a king named Ketoloamar rose up. And conquered the city of Sodom. And he took prisoners. And one of those prisoners escaped, makes their way to Abram and says, Abram, I need to let you know, Lot is a prisoner of war. Abram contacts three other men who are allies of him. And he gets his servants. In fact, we are told there are 318 of them, trained men, his militia, as it were. And he takes them, and he defeats Ketoloamar and rescues Lot. What we're about to read takes place in the aftermath of that. Start with verse 17. After his, that's Abram's return from the defeat of Ketoloamar and the kings who are with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, which is the valley of kings. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eskel, and Mamre take 
their share. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Well, the three characters that come to the forefront in this passage, Abram we're familiar with. While we're not as familiar with the king of Sodom, we are certainly well aware of the city which he ruled over, which we get to feel that he is not exactly a good man because, quite frankly, the, the city reflected the king and the king reflected the city. So we're familiar with Sodom, but it's this third one that I want to draw our attention to this morning. That is the one Melchizedek. Now, I want to draw our attention to him because he's not exactly in the top ten parade of Old Testament figures we think of. I mean, when you think of Old Testament saints, who comes to mind? Abram, Job maybe, David, Samuel, Saul maybe, Elijah, Elisha. But how many of us would say, yep, Melchizedek's the first name to roll off my tongue? In fact, I started to entitle this message, Melchizedek who? This man with the odd name comes out of nowhere. In fact, he's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. And it's not until we get to the New Testament that we really start to understand the importance of Melchizedek. And in understanding the importance of Melchizedek, we begin to understand more of who Jesus is and who we are in him so this morning, this is kind of the outline of the message. We're going to take a few minutes to talk about some rich and deep theology. And then upon that foundation, we're going to take and apply this truth of who Jesus is to our lives and then hopefully to one another. So if we are to understand this person, Melchizedek, who appears on the scene out of nowhere, we have to start, first of all, in Psalm 110. This is the only the second time in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned, and it's in a psalm written by King David. But this psalm is unique for several reasons. First, in verse 1, there on the left, the Lord says to my Lord. Now that's interesting to begin with because David was the king. In fact, in Israelite history, he was recognized as the king. What George Washington is to our nation, David was to the nation of Israel. But yet David begins this psalm by saying, the Lord says to my Lord. Who would God be talking to that's greater than King David? So we get a first little hint at the very beginning of this verse that David's talking about someone who will come later who will be much greater than King David. And so he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's kingly language. So whomever David is talking about here is a king. And then we get to verse 4. You see there on the right. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So once again, we see this unique combination. This is a king, but the Lord says to him, you're also a priest forever, which should cause us to scratch our heads because we have to remember that the kingship and the priesthood were to be kept distinct. And then the scripture is silent about Melchizedek. Until we get to the book of Hebrews. Now, I believe that Hebrews is a message that was preached by a preacher based on Psalm 110. 
And throughout the book of Hebrews, the author wants to show us, this preacher wants to make the point that Jesus is superior to anything in the Old Testament. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He has a superior covenant. And he has a superior priesthood. So that's where we have to start in understanding why Melchizedek is important. So we start with the passage that Michael read earlier. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So we have a priest. Now, the responsibility of a priest is to represent the people before God. So who is the priest representing us right now before God? It's not a trick question, so we'll try again. Who is the priest representing us right now in front of God? Better, better, all right? Jesus is. So what we are told now is we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So our high priest is greater because, one, he can truly empathize with our weaknesses, Second, he is greater because he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, the priests in the Old Testament, when they presented sacrifices, their sacrifices were not only on behalf of the people. Those sacrifices were on behalf of themselves, too. But Jesus is greater. Now, look at the command in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that wonderful? That because of our high priest, when we call out to God, we don't find condemnation and wrath. You and I find mercy and grace when we come to God in the time of need. But there is a little problem here. We have to run into this. Well, we don't have to run into it, but we do. How can Jesus be a priest? Because in the Old Testament, in the Torah, priest must come from the line of Levi. Jesus comes from the line of Judah. So how in the world can he claim to be a priest? I mean, on one level we could say, well, he's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants. And that's true. But remember, our God is a God of order. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So not only do we have the problem of Jesus' lineage, he's from the tribe of Judah, so how can he be a priest? He's not a Levi. We also have the issue of Jesus is the king. So how can the king also be a priest? Because the Torah, one, it warned the people about having a king and was very clear that when they did call a king, the king was not to take the role of a priest. Well, we have an answer to this question. And guess what that answer is? Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, as a priest, he's going to represent us before God. He's going to make sacrifices on our behalf in front of God. He's going to intercede for us. And the only way he can do that is because he is of the tribe of Melchizedek. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 110. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when you look back at Genesis, remember, Melchizedek appears on the scene without warning. He literally comes out of nowhere. 
And the point of Hebrews is to show us that Jesus is far superior to any earthly priesthood. And he can be a priest, not because he's of the order of Levi, but because he is of the order of Melchizedek. And that means that his priesthood is superior, is better because it is not based on lineage, but on calling. Hebrews chapter 7 The preacher says, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, that's not surprising because, remember, even in the Torah, when the people came to give a tenth, it was the priest that received it. So Abraham was recognizing that this priest Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High, was representing God. Now, he is first, by translation of his name, the King of Righteousness. Melchizedek is the smash-up of two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, And Dek, which means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. And then he is the king of Salem. And you see that in your text. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, peace. So in this priest, we see righteousness and priest. And then look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this is where the debate comes in. There are those on one side who feel like Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. In other words, before Jesus was born in the manger, he appeared in the form of a man upon the earth, as Melchizedek because it says here he didn't have any father or mother neither having beginning of days nor end of life that's one way to interpret it but another is to interpret it that Melchizedek was simply a man a righteous man who lived under the peace of God without father and mother or genealogy simply means that he wasn't a priest based upon his line he couldn't go back and say, I'm a priest because of my daddy or my granddaddy. He was a priest because of the calling of God. And when it says beginning of days nor end of life, it's simply stating Melchizedek's death and birth were not recorded anywhere. And then that phrase, resembling the Son of God, doesn't say he was or was like it, but he resembled him. But the point becomes clear, he continues a priest forever. That's great good news to us. Another reason that his is is just simply that. It is forever. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises like the likeness of Melchizedek who became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. That is a life that will never end. For it's witnessed of him who are a priest forever. Our Jesus never wearies or tires of interceding for us. And there's another reason that the priesthood of Jesus is superior. It ushers in the new covenant. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well. A change in the priesthood. It's no longer a Levitical priesthood that represents us. It's a Melchizedekian priesthood that represents us. So there's a change. Notice this is emphasized again in Hebrews 7. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this new priesthood under Melchizedek, which is who Jesus is or represents, means that we have access to God. We draw near to God, and it lasts forever. And because of that, and I know you're thinking, Pastor, this is all sounds right and good, but 
Okay, let's just be honest. So what? We're getting there. This impacts us because guess what? According to 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you and I, because we are in Jesus, we are a royal priesthood. We become kingly priests. Our Savior is of the order of Melchizedek. And because we are in Him, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, remember what a priest does. Represents people before God, makes sacrifice on behalf of people, and intercedes for people. Now, you and I, you and I can never attain who Jesus is. In other words, we can't sacrifice like he did. But we can point people to his sacrifice. And according to Romans 12, we can lay our lives as a living sacrifice on the altar. We can intercede for people. We can indeed be those that represent people before God in praying for them. And that's what I want to ask you today. Are we living as priests just as Jesus did? You see, the thing that amazes me in this passage is how Melchizedek appears out of nowhere. I would remind you that up to this point, Abraham is in a land surrounded by Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, Amorites, Amalekites, and Termites. He's by himself. There's no other. And you get this feeling that he's walking around the land thinking, am I the only one that follows Yahweh? He's like Elijah thinking, I'm just doomed. There's no hope. And then like Elijah was told by God, Elijah, I've got 4,000 that haven't bent the knee. This man, Melchizedek, comes out and he meets Abram to remind him you are not alone. Because we have no idea how Melchizedek came to know of God Most High, Elion, the possessor of heaven and earth. And he gives him praise. And he says, Abram, it is Yahweh, God Most High, who has delivered you. Praise him. It's a reminder to us that God is at work around us. That in the moments where we feel defeated, distracted, distressed, and alone, God has not and will not abandon us. We have a priest forever that is on our side pleading our case before God. And Satan wants to do anything he can to take the believer who is discouraged and hurting and to convince you and to convince me we're alone and nobody cares. Nobody understands. And he wants to isolate us. Don't let the devil do that. I want to encourage you by reminding you of what Michael read and what I read earlier. Because Jesus is our priest of the order of Melchizedek, we can come before the throne to find grace and help in our time of need. God is at work supernaturally. So in that time of need where you're feeling alone, discouraged, and distressed, will you call out to him? Because there are those moments when Jesus is our priest reminds us he is representing us before God. I haven't shared frequently some of the details that happened when Emma was at her worst. I've written a little booklet that details it, but not even that can convey the emotions of Wednesday night, November 22nd. This is 2016. Emma had been in a coma for three days now. The doctors still had no idea what was going on with her. But her vital signs were going all over the place. Blood pressure spiking and then dropping. Body temperature spiking and then dropping. 
She was on a ventilator. It was determined that she needed to go to a facility that might have more resources or more experience with whatever we may be dealing with. The doctors started contacting Duke University, University of Virginia, Emory and Henry in Atlanta, any place that may have a bed open in the neurointensive care to take her. They came back and said, we found a bed and they will accept him at the University of Tennessee and we're going to transport her by plane. The plane will be landing in an hour. I drove home to get our clothes while Jody stayed with Emma. When I got back, there were people gathered in the hallway. And I was met by, I don't even remember who it was, that said, Mark, the doctor needs to see you and Jody right away. We sat down in the waiting room in the ICU, and the neurologist and the pulmonologist sat down in front of us. They said, we want to let you know, Mr. and Mrs. Herod, Emma's no longer stable enough to be transported by airplane or helicopter. Her vitals are too all over the place. We don't think she would survive the trip. You have two choices. We can either try transporting her by ambulance, or she can stay here. And I remember at that moment, I stopped to look at Jody so we could discuss it, and the neurologist leaned toward me, put his hand on my knee, and said, Mr. Harrod, you don't understand. You need to decide. You need to decide now. Can't wait. And if it was my daughter, I would send her to UT. Now, while all of this is going on, there are people from this congregation that are in the hallway, that are in the waiting room, praying, praying, calling out to God when Jody and I didn't have a voice to do that. And I, we will never forget, in fact, as I was talking with Jody about this, this point, she said, Mark, do you remember there were three of them that we found out later? They were in the hallway praying. And to their testimony, they said, Mark, the Spirit of God was so strong on that moment, saying the words, Emma will be okay, that we just stopped praying and just stood adoring God for a few moments. Church, that's our high priest at work. That is us being priests for one another, interceding for one another. People often say, why should I share my prayer request? God knows, and I don't want to appear weak to others. Listen, God placed us within a body that we might be priests to each other so that we don't have the words or the strength to pray. There are brothers and sisters in Christ being priests for us, taking us to our great high priest but Satan does not want you to experience that he doesn't want you to know the supernatural power of God so he wants to keep you isolated from a body of believers and he wants to stop you from praying don't let him win call out to God and when you can't call out call a brother or sister and say I need you to pray and brother and sister when that person calls you to pray this is what I want you to do I don't want you to get on the phone and call somebody else and say oh guess what's going on guess what's who called me this is what I want you to do pray 
Stop right there. Pray with them. If you can't pray with them, stop right there and pray and lift them up because this is the second truth I want you to take away. Not only is God at work supernaturally, He works through other people. This is flesh and blood that Abram encountered. Whether you interpret this as a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, or Melchizedek was just a, a man faithful to God Most High appeared on the scene, he was flesh and blood who met Abraham with bread and wine to minister to him. God works through us. Yes, there are supernatural moments like I just talked about, but there are also very real moments where you experience the grace and the power of God through other believers. I've had people say to me, Mark, the only way we get through this is through, through the power of God, through the love of God, the presence of God. And they're right. Amen. But you know how you often experience the love and the power and the strength of God? Through other believers. A word. A card. So if I could ask some follow-up questions. First, are you willing to receive ministry from others? See, once again, Satan's game is to isolate. And he plays this well. Because there are times that people are hurt by members in the church, and so their response is withdraw. That's Satan's strategy. Are you willing to receive? Because sometimes that means humbling ourselves. To say, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I think one of the lies that Satan has used in twisting Scripture so often is this line. I hear people say this. God won't put any more on you than you can stand. That's not what that Scripture says. God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand. But there are things in life that are more than you can stand. Read 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, we went through trials and tribulations. It's so difficult, we thought we were going to die. And at those moments is when you need to be able to say, I need help. Because as we express that to others, we begin to experience. We begin to experience the grace and mercy of God. Are you willing to receive that? Second question is this, are you willing to be available to give that? We need ministers of encouragement. There are far too many ministers of discouragement. We need those who will speak life and truth and point people to our great high priest. It may be a small word. I remember reading this, this brief little anecdote from uh, Tapestry Magazine by Paula Kirk. Paula's daughter has, was going through a divorce, a horrible, nasty divorce, and she was her daughter was broken, so she had flown across country over Easter weekend to be with her daughter, to minister and take care of her. And the time came for her to leave her daughter, fly back home. So she walks into the airport, she goes up to a store to get something to eat, and her heart is just breaking. And as she's checking out, the lady behind the counter says, well, I hope you enjoyed our visit to your state. I hope you liked it. She said, well, your state's beautiful. She said, you know, just general chit-chat. She said, yes, the lady behind the counter said, yes, God's made a beautiful world for us to enjoy. So much variety. What did you see on your vacation? Paula said tears welled up in her eyes. Her grief was raw. She said it wasn't a vacation. 
I was here because of a serious family problem and my daughter's having a hard time and I hate to leave her. Paula Kirk said the lady behind the counter leaned closer and said, but God is good. He will work on your daughter's behalf. Paula said she walked away from there with just a touch, a reminder of Christ's resurrection power. The power of God's love to reach out and touch a hurting heart. How? Through the words of a believer, just willing to say, God's at work. Sometimes it means laying aside our hurt, our needs. Will we be that incarnation of our great high priest to one another? To speak life, to speak love, to remind one another that God is not done. You're not alone. You have a great high priest who is on your side. Will you bow with me now before him? This morning, I hope you know this great high priest is Lord and Savior. You've seen the physical testimony this morning of four, four ladies who have publicly declared that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. I can't emphasize this enough. Don't delay making this decision. Over the past three days, I've been a part of two funerals. Both of them were believers. One was expected. It was an older man. The other was completely unexpected. I was reminded by the fellow preacher at one of the messages, life is but a vapor. Make the decision for Christ today. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our great high priest. I don't understand all the theology of this. I don't understand, Father, a lot of it. But, Father, I do believe in and have experienced your grace and your mercy. And I thank you that it's free for all who would call upon you. Lord, we're in need of it. There's not a single one of us in here that can go one moment without your grace or one second without your mercy. So, Lord, let it flow freely in our lives. Let us share that with one another, to speak life to one another, to speak the truth of Jesus, to point people to the goodness. Lord, help us to do this and help us to receive it. Father, there are hurts that will hinder us from doing what we need to do. Lord, bring healing to those hurts. You are the one that heals the brokenhearted. You are the priest that can sympathize with us. Grant this, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.